welcome to Vine Pair, the show where we talk about the experiences that you have with a glass in hand. From our New York headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. Today on the show, we're going to talk about one of the world's most famous wine regions, Bordeaux. Zach, what's your impression of Bordeaux? Well, I think I have two different impressions of Bordeaux, and I guess that's kind of one of the issues that we want to talk about today, which is, on the one hand, when I think of Bordeaux, I think of the famed first growths, the almost ludicrously priced wine, and a region that, as a sommelier and wine drinker, is almost irrelevant to me. And at the same time, I think about Bordeaux, and I think, like, man, there's some really good wine out there. Well, I just mean, you know, my life as a as a sommelier and as a wine drinker does not revolve around thousand dollar bottles of wine. Sad to say, um, but the reality is that you know the there is a lot of I think what I what I have come to learn and what I'd be you know curious to talk about over the course of this episode is you know what else is going on in Bordeaux because it, Bordeaux is so I think dominated by. Um, the public perception and the consumer perception and even the trade perception by these, you know, iconic wines. And yet it's a huge wine region that produces a ton of wine and definitely not all of it is at that price point. But some of it I think is really good, um, even if it does get obscured by a lot of what uh, what we kind of are going to be talking about, which is those, those preeminent wines. So, I mean, I would say for me uh... – Bordeaux is this magical region because it's sort of one of the first regions that helped me fall in love with wine. Um, when I was starting Vine Pair, uh, I was competing in the Bordeaux Cup, which was um, this you know blind tasting competition that we actually wound up winning in the United States and going to Bordeaux to compete in the finals for. So we rep- I represented the United States in that tasting. So for me, I had this like really you know strong attachment to the region. I think it's I think it doesn't get enough uh, respect. I think it gets sort of you know talked down a lot by some of the cool kids psalms for really dumb reasons like i mean it, no offense but even some of the things you're saying like oh i, I can't it, it's not applicable to me you know it's uh i can't afford some of the things i think that but then other, the other points you're making is that there is some amazing value there and some amazing producers that are at those super high price points so to sort of settle this conversation uh and and give us a real perspective on bordeaux i'm i've brought in uh philippe newland who is the u.s director of duclos um and, you know, I think he's he's pretty much the preeminent export, expert on Bordeaux. So I'm going to let him settle a debate for us about <laughs> why we should be drinking Bordeaux now. Is that cool with you, Zach? Bring it on. All right. So, Philippe, welcome to the show. Hey, gentlemen. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Our pleasure. So let's let's start with a question that I guess is a, <clears throat> pardon me, is, is a pretty broad one, but also I think a, a pretty specific one, which is, is Bordeaux still relevant and how? to the average wine drinker, not to say the person seeking out the you know most prestigious bottles in the world? Well, as uh, I think Adam stated earlier, um, Bordeaux is the largest wine growing region in France. Uh, you have about 6,000 active wineries. And what's interesting is not more than a decade and a half ago, you had about 10 times that amount of producers. There's been a huge consolidation in the region, but it remains uh, one of the biggest producing areas in in all of French wine. Uh, and the perception remains, uh, at least in this country, that Bordeaux is this magical, I think was the word that uh, Adam used, place of chateaus and, and uh, vines being grown since Roman times. Um, and a place that a lot of people feel might just be out of their reach. But the truth is, Bordeaux is probably the largest category 
on the shelves of French grocery stores and supermarkets at, at price points that really compete with uh, beer. Uh, you can get a, a perfectly fine Bordeaux for five euros at uh, most corner stores in France. So we we have the press in, in the U.S. And, and the U.K. and all around the world, the, the specialized press that um, makes its living sort of talking about the most luxurious and beautiful wines, you know, the aspirational wines. Um, and that tends to dominate the discussion or the perception. But the truth is, uh, if it's Tuesday night, I'm probably drinking a bottle that I could buy in a store in the U.S. for 15 bucks, um, chill down in the fridge for 20 minutes along with my hamburger. And in fact, I did that two nights ago with a California burger that my wife prepared for me. So, yeah, I think we need to look a little bit deeper. I think Bordeaux is, is a lot more than the snippet that we're fed by uh, the professional press. So speaking of that snippet that the professional press feeds us, um, you know, how much of that snippet is really due to the 1855 classification? And this idea that there are, you know, a group of chateaus that are heads and tails above the rest of them. And I'd love it if as well, like you could explain the 1855 classification, because I'm sure a lot of listeners have no clue what I'm talking about when I'm throwing that out there. Um, and its impact on the world of Bordeaux as we know it. Okay, great. So the 1855 classification. So just backing up, you know, Bordeaux has been producing grapes for wine literally for centuries and centuries. So in 1855, uh, France was hosting what was essentially a world's fair. And Napoleon III basically had to put forward all of the best products of France in this fair that was held in Paris. And so he turned to the negociants or the, the brokers uh, in Bordeaux, the Bordeaux wine trade, and said, can you put together a list of the best wines? Uh, so that when folks come from any number of countries, we can say to them, look, here are the best wines of our country from what was then considered the best region of France. And so the brokers basically did what, not what I would do. They, they looked at price, the price points and price groupings and said, okay, they have, there are a bunch of wines that um, are priced way up here. Uh, there were four wines at the time, Lafitte, Margot, uh, Latour and Aubryon, and we'll call those the first growths or the best wines. And then they looked at another, the next grouping of, of prices and they said, oh, okay, so you have all these folks like Ducru, Bocayu, and Custestronal, any number of wines. We'll call those the second uh, tier. So essentially it was, it was a codification of what was already determined by the market through pricing of the quality ranges of the very best Bordeaux. And it was roughly 60 wines that were, that were um, put on that list at the request of, of the head of France. Wait, so I'm to believe really quickly that this, because I think that this is a, a, uh, something that consumers don't understand. So this was not a blind tasting. No one said, like, based on a panel of judges, this is where the rating, the classifications are coming from. This was literally just based on price. Yeah, essentially, um, the brokers in Bordeaux are specialized, right? They they only do those wines. They they taste those wines every day. They they trade those wines amongst themselves, and they still do this today. 
there's still a very active place or marketplace in Bordeaux. And in fact, if you were to go to Bordeaux and go into some of these offices, you'd see guys behind a few computer screens checking uh, current pricing. They're, they're literally trading these wines because what you have to remember is Bordeaux is a, as mentioned before, a large, great wine growing area. And the production of individual properties, even if they are ranked as a first growth, uh, they produce a lot of wine. This is not small scale wine growing. So there's a lot of wine to sell. And Bordeaux is, our company distributes uh, the wines of Bordeaux to over 70 countries around the planet. So you have to have some volume. So the, the point I'm coming around to is these guys were tasting the wines all the time. They knew what the best of the best wines were. And essentially they didn't need to blind taste them because they already knew these wines intimately. So they decided, well, if we're going to make it simple for the consumer, what does the consumer care about? Well, they care about how much it's going to cost. And that's how they broke it down into those, those different levels. And so how has this classification system sort of influenced Bordeaux since 1855? Like what have you seen in terms of its impact on the market? So what, what the classification does, you know what, why don't we come to the present day and let's talk about China um, from say the early aughts uh, when China really started getting into Bordeaux uh, as, as wealth in China really started expressing itself through the acquisition of all kinds of luxury goods. Um, the classification of 1855 gave people a simple uh, list of the best, um, whether it's Bordeaux or whether it's, you know, the, the handbags of LVMH or, uh, the cars of Ferrari or the, you know, any other luxury product, essentially these top, top Bordeaux are viewed as uh, a demonstration of, of greatness, but also, uh, for, for newly emerging economies, these are touchstones that, people want to have to show their wealth, uh, but also to share with colleagues, share in business situations to say, look, um, we've arrived and we want the best of the best. So essentially that's present day, right? But essentially these wines have been the flagship bears uh, for the region saying Bordeaux produces at a super high quality level, can command super high prices, but this is the tip of the iceberg. I often compare uh, the first growths to say a few dozen actors in Hollywood who command super high salaries. But meanwhile, a lot of folks are still you know, working those jobs in restaurants, waiting on tables. A lot of producers in Bordeaux still have a lot of dirt under their nails and have to get up early in the morning to get the tractor started. Um, it's a pyramid and uh the iceberg that we see is just that little percentage that's sticking out of the water in the luxury category, but there's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, I'm almost creating an analogy here, economic analogy. There's a whole lot of stuff in Bordeaux, believe it or not, that's underwater. A lot of producers who are barely breaking even. And, you know, as I mentioned, that has led to a lot of consolidation. There aren't as many producers as there used to be. Okay. But here's my question. So we talked about the 1855 classification, which, and, this is just personal perspective, is kind of bullshit. Like, we have not only the sort of question about 
you know, whether just judging based on price is actually the best way to determine quality, but it's also based on, you know, viticulture that was being done 160 plus years ago. And I think one of the issues that, you know, people like me have with some of Bordeaux is that there's this obsession with this uh, hierarchy, this this uh, classification system, which obviously benefits those chateaus that were ranked not just in the first growths, but any of the classified growths can command in many cases more, you know, vastly more for their money or vastly more money for their wine, whether or not it's better than, say, a non-classified wine uh, from nearby. And obviously there are the non-classified growths now that where the chateaus have received enough acclaim and have enough reputation where they can also make money. But it's really this, you know, kind of really rigid hierarchical system, which I mean, rankles me as someone who doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, the decisions that were made about what were the best wines in France 160 years ago are particularly relevant to us now. And so I kind of wonder, you know, is there a way in which that that rigid stratification, does it stifle not just maybe, I mean, I wonder if it stifles creativity to some extent in in Bordeaux, if there is a sense of like, you know, you look at most of the other classic regions in France and and even the ones with an equivalent history like Burgundy, there are definitely producers uh, for better or for worse, who are trying new things there. But Bordeaux still seems to be really dominated by big chateaus, by you know conventional agriculture, by a sort of a relatively monolithic style, which sometimes is delicious. I don't mean to say that the wine is bad, but I don't know that it's necessarily all that interesting. So, the, okay, thank you for those grenades. Um, the, we can say, yeah, that the codification of 1855 is pretty rigid. It, it hasn't seen any changes uh, save one, really, which was in 73 when Mouton Rothschild was elevated to uh, first growth status. But the pricing is not to be taken um, in a vacuum. The pricing was there because people recognized the quality of the juice. And they also recognized that certain places, certain terroirs were better than others, are better than others. Uh, you have to understand that the topography of Bordeaux is actually pretty flat. And if you look at the very best properties, they tend to be on hills. In fact, if you know a little bit about, well, you have to know a lot about um, the local language of Bordeaux, but some of the very best properties have the word hill in them. Uh, You look at Chateau Lafitte, Rothschild. Lafitte means hill. Uh, you look at Chateau Cos d'Estronel. Cos is another word for hill. You look at, well, let's go back to Lafitte, Smith O Lafitte down in Pissac Leonio. That's the high hill of Mr. Smith. Um, Grand Puy Lacoste, Puy, that's hill. So these Bordeaux was a region that actually was kind of swampy until the 18th, 19th centuries when the Dutch came in and helped with all their technology to drain a lot of the areas. Uh, to make it make them uh, usable for agriculture, but the truth is, the very best properties were on these islands, if you will, these hills where free drainage made for much better vine growing. So the stratification does upset some people, but truth be told, uh, when you have information flow, stratifications fall apart if they if they don't make sense. And in Bordeaux the emergence of great uh, of the great influence of certain critics really has made a difference. If you think about it, Bob Parker took Chateau Lanchebage. I, I don't know if I should say Bob Parker took Lanchebage, but uh, he certainly spoke up 
uh, in favor of fifth growth Chateau Lanchbach. And Lanchbach never accepted really the, their position in the classification. And they've always worked really, really hard to outperform. And they were recognized by this American critic with high scores. And let me tell you, the folks who are in you know, second position as uh, second crews in Bordeaux, it, they're not too happy that they're not first crews. So being in that position now with critics who taste the wines and score the wines, you, know, you can agree with that or not, but knowing that there is something beyond the classification that looks at their quality, they are pushing hard to outperform their first growth neighbors because they can get scores that are higher than their first growth neighbors. So you, you can say that some people are resting on their laurels. Eh, I'm a, I'm a first growth. I don't really have to do anything, but you can also look at people who are pushing always harder to essentially surpass the expectations of the classification. So now I want to touch on a point which um, leads me to believe that you haven't visited Bordeaux anytime in the recent past. The idea that this is all conventional architecture you know, done by people wearing tweed jackets um, from from their porches uh, with uh, the money, corporate money of banks. Uh, the truth is, could not be farther uh, farther from that. Uh, Bordeaux in the 13 years that I've been visiting, especially in the last seven or eight years, is undergoing a revolution in the vineyard. Uh, we all talk about the little producers here and there across France who are into biodynamics and all the rest of it. Don't forget, scale of Bordeaux is much larger than Burgundy, much larger than your typical producer in the Loire. These folks are not gardening. They have big properties. The risk of screwing up on that much of a surface of however many hectares, you know, you can't look at that every single day like the farmer in the Loire who's going out and walking every single row every single day. It's not possible. So they've been perhaps more conservative. But now that they see how organic, biodynamic farming practices are making for more precise wines, wines of, of greater vibrancy, of greater purity, people are all in. Uh, the the old timers who don't want to go down this path will tell you, oh well, you know, Bordeaux's climate is very humid. It's it's along the Atlantic. We have all these rivers. We can't do by it. But the truth is, now those those guys are being pulled, kicking and screaming into a new uh, way of doing things because their neighbors are going full force. Chateau Margaux is farming biodynamically a number of parcels, organically some other parcels. They're still. Uh, not going 100% because everything at the top level tends to move a bit slowly, but they are doing everything that they can to understand the dynamics. Uh, the new, the new winemaker, or I should say viticulturalist in Bordeaux is the 11 year old son of, of the farmer who is operating the drone with the infrared camera to map the vigor of every parcel in the vineyard so that those parcels can be farmed and they can be harvested in the right way at the right time. So, and, and, and it even extends into the wineries. A lot of the big vats that you used to see 
10, 15 years ago have been yanked out of a lot of these wineries and replaced by small conical vats that have been sized exactly to match the number of hectoliters that are expected to be harvested from individually identified parcels. Bordeaux is moving in the direction of top champagne in that this is a region that has always been a blending region. You know, they don't produce varietal Cabernet Sauvignon or varietal Merlot. It's always a blend. The French like to cook. And in Bordeaux, the weather has been variable. And so it's also a risk mitigation play. But they, like the great champagne houses, have a much better understanding nowadays through much more precise mapping and agriculture of what their parcels can give them. And then that allows them to do a blending that is much more thought out, much more, uh, I keep coming back to this word, precise. It's not just big batches go in, you know, however many grapes fill the, fill the vat, that's how many we put in. Not at all. And I, I think that the word that you hear when you talk to the Bordelais these days, in contrast to these, what you said about monolithic and, and sort of passive, uh, a passive approach based on just historical position, um, the new, the new winemakers, these are people who have done uh, internships, whether it be in Napa or in Australia or even Burgundy. These are people who have a lot more exposure to what's going on around the world, and they are not standing still. So I probably went on too long, but uh, you, those were a few grenades. I had to answer each. I, I hope I, if there was any grenade I didn't answer, please tell me. Well, I, I actually, I'm actually really heartened to hear that because um, I, I do have, a, I think, I mean, Bordeaux is not just an incredibly important white region historically or because of the preeminence of the um, top wineries. But as you mentioned, it's obviously a huge, it's the largest wine region in France. And and I think wanting to see that region succeed and to modernize and to kind of embrace what, what is kind of seen as being valuable throughout the wine world these days is really cool. I'm wondering, are, are, are producers there, are chateaus there? Uh, maybe reassessing a little bit their um, their plantings. Are you seeing a shift in in the varietal plantings? And you know, we think of yeah. sort of traditionally of of you know the left bank as Cabernet and the right bank as Merlot and a little bit of Cabernet Franc. And maybe there's tiny bits of Petit Verdot or Malbec, various places. Are you are you seeing chateaus starting to sort of change that as either climate change takes effect or better viticultural practices allow for um, you know kind of more consistent growing of varietals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you raise the issue of climate change. And um, this issue, all, all you have to do is talk to a farmer, right, to understand that it's it's really happening. I think most of us have accepted this already, although there are still some folks who... Uh, but anyway... Um, the president, it's fine. I, I did not say that. Uh, <laughs> I fear for my... I fear for the wrath of the IRS. Um, what we're seeing in Bordeaux... Uh, at the grape variety level, at the farming level, uh, let's start with grape varieties. On the left bank, we're moving more, even more, uh, towards plantings of Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, there was a time when Merlot was used a lot on the left bank, uh, not necessarily because it was the best grape to plant, but because Merlot throws off a lot of, a lot of uh, volume. And so after the, um, after the depression after uh, you know, the Second World War, 
when things were economically strapped, uh, there were producers who were planting a lot of Merlot just because they needed volume. Uh, the economic needs for some of the bigger properties, you know, the more famous properties are clearly not as, as great as they used to be. They're making money. And the climate is favoring thick-skinned grapes with high natural acidity. So Cabernet Sauvignon is definitely seeing more planting going on on the left bank at the expense of Merlot. And you're also seeing Petit Verdot being used more often. And you're even starting to see a creeping back in of Carmenere, which was not replanted after it was basically decimated by phylloxera. And people said, well, that grape isn't that, it never really ripened. So we're not going to make great efforts to replant it. But Carmenere is migrating back from Chile <laughs> and being replanted in Bordeaux. And every year the acreage goes up. And then over on the right bank, um, Merlot is also suffering, uh, again, because of heat. And you can talk to any number of Saint-Emilion producers or satellite producers these days. And Cabernet Franc is being planted more and more. Why? To bring acid to the blend, to keep some aromatics in a situation where um, things are getting burned off by more and more intense heat. Um, I visited a producer not too long ago who had shifted, that had basically grafted um, uh, Cabernet onto what was Sauvignon Blanc vines um, because the Sauvignon Blanc, they had to move that to a north-facing slope because it was just burning up. So will we see Syrah? No, uh, at least not officially because the AOC doesn't allow it. But will we see thicker skinned, higher acid grapes um, and a shifting of uh, white wine production to cooler terroirs? Yeah, it's, it's going on right now. Well, I mean, it's fascinating every time we talk to anyone from a specific region to hear how climate change is really impacting uh, how the wine's being made. I want to go back a little bit to not keep harping on 1855, et cetera, but build on a point that you were making, which is that there's a lot of great Bordeaux out there. So I would challenge you um, to to help us help our listeners. How do you find that other great Bordeaux? The 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 re, you know the idea that the classification system is there means that right you have this this key of the, these producers the right of these top tops and then okay so like some people want to pay attention to scores others don't right so mm-hmm. they don't really want to know if this was a 94 95 they just want to walk into their wine shop and find that amazing 15 dollar bordeaux that you're talking about that they can have with their burger are there any tricks i mean there's what i find with bordeaux is there's so many other labels there's cru bourgeois there's you know th- this classification or that classification you know bordeaux superior which I, I don't think means much right so what should someone be looking for is there a price level that you can say look if you're over 20 bucks you're you're probably going to find it it's probably good quality what are some some tips tricks that you could give people so my day job is um importer of wine from Bordeaux. Uh, and I know that some folks who are into wine will look at back labels to see if the wine's been imported by Kermit Lynch or if it was brought in by Jenny and Francois or, you know, you have your folks who do a really good job of curating. Bordeaux is a mess um, in that. And I, I say that in the nicest way. Uh, it's, it's a complex mess because there are no exclusive importers for given properties. 
um, because of the size of Bordeaux, typically the Chateau sell through sell their wines through agents to these brokers that are called négociants. And then those négociants are, let's say, the exporter brokers. They then sell the wines to as many importers as want to buy them. And then those importers go off and they distribute them through as many distributors as are willing to buy them because these wines are not like other wines. Um, they're not imported uh, by an exclusive importer. Uh, they're imported by various importers. The same wine could be imported by half a dozen importers. So these guys who take on these wines have to sell their wines at lower margins because they have competition on a chateau, name your chateau. So it's not, uh, I've just told you why not to listen to what I just said, because <laughs> checking, checking back labels doesn't make a lot of sense because none of this stuff is, is in, in the, in the traditional sense being uh, curated. What, what I would say to your point, Adam, about pricing, um, here's the good news. If you line up a $20 Cabernet blend from Bordeaux against any number of Cabernet blends from, I'm not going to single out a region, but you know, the one I'm thinking of, um, uh, Napa, uh, uh, uh you're going to 10 times out of 11, um, you're going to be really impressed with the quality level at the price point. The bottom line is there are a lot of people producing this stuff. Um, on the importing side, there are a lot of imp people importing this stuff. Uh, I think the point, the price point is 15 bucks. I think above 15 bucks, you're going to get something that's honestly made that um, can stand up to the varietal equivalent from, uh, from somewhere here in the U.S. Um, if you get into that 20 to $30 range, you're going to get the equivalent of like a $60 wine from out West. Uh, it's, it's just a matter of supply. Um, what I would say to you is, and I'm going to, I'm going to catch some heat for this, but um, the younger producers who are uh, making perhaps even more efforts or let's be polite and say who have you know, the latest technology at their fingertips or the latest knowledge, I think is the better way to put it. They, their labels will probably look a little more modern. And so if there's a visual clue, uh, that could be a good visual clue. Um, the other thing that I would say is if you know that list of the top, top wines, if you have it laminated in your wallet, look for their, the same properties, second wines. Some of them are even producing third wines. What does that mean? Uh, they're producing wines to drink while their top wines are aging because those really expensive top wines, those aren't the wines that you want to order in a restaurant until they have 15, 20 years of age on them. Uh, a, they're going to be too expensive and B, they're not going to really drink that well. So those properties produce second labels with more Merlot, more, you know, less time in barrel, et cetera, that are more just pleasurable, young. So it doesn't have to say Chateau. It can say, instead of saying Chateau du Crubeau Caillou, it might say Le Petit Caillou de du Crubeau Caillou. That's all French to everyone listening, I suppose. But it doesn't have to say Chateau. And if it has kind of a younger looking label, that's, to me, uh, that attracts my attention too. So I can't give you the key 
because it's such a big region. Uh, but I will give you uh, at least my personal vote of confidence, which is the stuff that comes into this country, if it's above 15 bucks, someone has t- taken the time, has picked it out, and it will probably be a very nice wine. I have a real quick question, Philippe, which is sort of the forgotten part of Bordeaux, which is Bordeaux Blanc, which I love almost across the board. Can you give our audience like a two-minute explanation as to what that is and why it's something they should, like what what people who, what white wine drinkers um, or what kind of white wine drinkers would like Bordeaux Yeah. Blanc? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we, we do a lot of education uh, at, our, at our office because uh, we work a lot with young sommeliers. And the biggest attendance we've ever had out of literally hundreds of classes that we've given, um, the biggest attendance was for our white Bordeaux class last year. I mean, we had people hanging from the rafters. So let me back up. The word Bordeaux, it's not the name of a river like Loire or Rhone. Bordeaux is a composite word. It means bord, which is edge, and eau, which is the plural of waters. So edge of waters, you have, you have the Atlantic, you have the two major rivers, the Dordogne and the Garonne. You have the estuary of the Gironde, which at its widest point is about seven miles wide. I mean, there is a lot of water around these vineyards. And when you have water, you have little, you know, uh, shellfish and fish and all kinds of good things to have with white wine. So the Bordelais care about white wine. And it wasn't a hundred years ago that most of the production in Bordeaux was white wine. I mean, we don't think about this. We think Bordeaux, we think red wine. But the truth is with all of those wonderful things from the rivers and the ocean, you're probably drinking white wine, unless you're having those delicious eels out of the river that are cooked in red wine. Mm. So, so Bordeaux Blanc, just to, for folks who need to know the ingredients, essentially for the dry whites, it's the typical blend is 80% Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. We're all familiar. And then the secret ingredient is the grape Semillon. And Semillon is best known in Bordeaux for being the grape that is used in the production of the sweet wines of Sauterne. Uh, Semillon is a much lower acid grape. And it gives a certain richness to the white Bordeaux blend. Again, it's a blend. We're not talking about 100% Chardonnay, 100% Sauvignon Blanc. We're talking about something that French folks cooked up to go with their seafood. And that little curve, that little lemon curd roundness richness at the end of the typical Bordeaux Blanc uh, just adds complexity. Backing up a little bit. Bordeaux Blanc is inexpensive. 98% of it is cheap. It comes principally from an area called the Entre-de-Mer, which means between two oceans. In this case, it's between two rivers, the Dordogne and the Garonne. And it's uh, high volume, inexpensive, fresh, zippy, citrusy juice. And then you have some Bordeaux Blanc that uh, see the treatment of the great Wines of the white wines of Burgundy. Yeah. They see oak treatment and new French oak barrels, batonnage or the stirring of the lees to give the wines additional richness. They can be smoky and toasty, have a little bit of structure that comes from barrel aging. 
and be very age-worthy. So again, uh, I'm sorry, there's no straight up, this is what it is. Um, it's always, these are what it is because uh, there's always a variety of different things and Bordeaux Blanc is no exception. Um, I think the reason that we had so many people attend the seminar was because uh, we're doing seminars for sommeliers. Sommeliers love their seafood towers and other great fish and uh, certainly oysters, New York, you know, the great oyster town. Um, and it's different. Most people are not familiar with Bordeaux Blanc, but they are familiar with Sauvignon Blanc. So you can take a consumer who wants a white wine with that first dish or that main dish that's from the sea. And you can say, check this out. Uh, it'll remind you of, uh, let's say, a, a really good um, Sonoma uh, a Sauvignon Blanc. But, but look how it's different on the finish. Look how it's got that nice creamy richness. And, uh, and so it's, it's for, the, for the sommelier, it's like a secret weapon. Because it's something that brings familiarity, but also brings surprise. So, Zach, I don't think that I, you know, adequately described who Philippe was at the beginning of this episode because I brought a ringer. Uh, if you couldn't <laughs> tell, so th this guy not only, um, you know, is the U.S. director of Duclos, but he's probably one of the preeminent wine educators in the country. Uh, so, hopefully, I think I won this debate. I'm just going to say I think I probably convinced you uh, that this is. A region that, and hopefully everyone else out there too, that this is a region that is worth taking a second look at. If you've, you know, sort of passed it by and thought, oh, that's not cool, or you know, you're, you know, buying into sort of like the a lot of the hipster psalm trends. I think, you know, what I feel Philippe has, you know, very adequately art articulated is that this is a region that has a lot to offer, that's really incredible, and that if you are writing it off, you're doing yourself a disservice. Oh, for sure. I think there's no doubt that there's some exceptional wine coming out of. Bordeaux, and not all of it is even at the price point that we sometimes associate with Bordeaux. I think it is definitely a region, though, and and this is where I think Philippe's advice is is good, where you really have to kind of pay attention. You have to know a little bit who your producers or at least your importers are, and maybe do a little bit of trial and error um, to find out. But it's certainly, I certainly agree with the with the point as made, which is as far as value goes, it can be sourced for some of the the best value wines, certainly from France. Um, and obviously, if you have the $5,000 to buy a first growth Bordeaux, then great, do that too. I mean, look, and I would, I would argue too that drinking is trial and error. You know, you go to a brewery and you're not going to like every beer that the brewery is brewed. And you've got to try them in order to understand what you like. Same with, you know, alcohol with whiskey, right? You, there's certain bourbon producers that are excellent. There's other bourbon producers that are the cool new hip kids on the block that maybe, as we've talked about before, Zach, you know, aging bourbon for you know only two years and it's undrinkable. And I think the same is true. And the, the idea that there's a, you know, this secret weapon that you have in order to ensure you always are going to have a great bottle of wine, it, you know, is, is a mistake to believe. That being said, I do think it is a region that is, you know, established in a way that you can be more confident in drinking wine from this region than a lot of others. Um, so with that, Philippe, I really want to thank you so much for coming in and being my ringer. Uh, it's been amazing to have you. Adam, anytime. Uh, my only issue with this whole thing is no one, no one pulled any corks. I'm, I'm feeling really dry right now. So if we could wrap this up, cause I need a glass of something, something. <laughs> All right. Wait, wait, wait. I was led to believe you. I was led to believe you never traveled without wine. So I feel like this is on you. <laughs> 
Well, I, I brought wine, but it's ended up on the vine pear shelf for the you know consumption of uh, the hard work. Uh, keep staff. those interns away from. Keep those interns away from that wine. We're, we're actually going to drink it. We're going to pop it tomorrow at the staff party. <laughs> um, so yeah, Zach, this was another awesome conversation. Can't wait to talk again next week. Sounds great. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jabal. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.